Let's turn now to Psalm 90. Title is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man to destruction and say, Return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They are like asleep. In the morning they are like grass which grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows up. In the evening it is cut down and withers. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are seventy years, and if by reason of strength they are eighty years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long, and have compassion on your servants. O satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all your day, all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants, and your glory to their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Connection with this scripture reading, we also want to read Article 1 of the Belgic Confession. It's on page 153 in our Book of Forms and Prayers, if you wish to follow along there. Article 1, The Only God. We all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God, eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty, completely wise, just, and good, and the overflowing source of all good. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, J.I. Hacker uh, said, we are modern people, and modern people, though they cherish great thoughts about themselves, have, as a rule, small thoughts of God. And uh, our aim in this series on uh, Article 1 of the Belgic Confession is that our thoughts of God might be enlarged, uh, that the teaching of Scripture might fill us with great thoughts of God. And we're using uh, Article 1 as kind of a rough outline. I'm not following each of these attributes of God, either in order or in great detail. Uh, it's, not, it's not a complete, uh, thorough um, exposition of God, all God's attributes. It doesn't even identify uh, all of those uh, ways in which the Bible reveals God to us. But... Uh, we are considering a number of passages of Scripture that are uh, related to various descriptions of God here in this confession. And we're focusing on different passages of Scripture. 
within their own context so that we might see how God reveals himself to us also in relationship uh, to ourselves in his word. And uh, so far we have considered that uh, the knowledge of God is through the mediator, our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's given to us so that we might possess eternal life in union with the Father and the Son. And to know God is to come to Him. It is to, uh, to seek Him as the rewarder of those who believe that He is. And, uh, that He is indeed the rewarder of those who seek to Him. Now in Psalm 90, we have an inspired, uh, prayer that is given to us for our instruction. And, uh, is a prayer to the eternal God, the one who has been our dwelling place in all generations, uh, who before the mountains were brought forth or he had formed the earth, even from everlasting to everlasting is God. And so this psalm holds before us the, the eternity of God. And, uh, we are going to consider God as, as our dwelling place, as one who is infinitely great, but also who is in a relationship of covenant faithfulness and loving kindness to us as those who put their trust in him. So we have this wonderful prayer that reveals the greatness of our God and truly uh, serves to instruct us in the way of faith and, and prayer. And uh, we're taught to pray with reliance upon God, the everlasting God, who is described for us in this passage in such a marvelous way. And to pray to God truly means that we face the truth uh, about ourselves in relationship to God. And that means facing uh, the reality of our own weakness. We, we pray with humility uh, before God's greatness in the awareness of our weakness and uh, the awareness of the the shortness of our lives. That's a theme that we find in this psalm. Sometimes children may ask, uh, who made God? And uh, that's a, a logical kind of reasonable question for children to ask, because in their experience and their knowledge, everything comes from someone or something. And uh, so uh, they might ask that question concerning God himself. But of course, the answer to that question is that no one made God. God always was. God is eternal. With God, there is no beginning or end. With God, you might even say that there is no before and after. God inhabits eternity. I know our psalm uses this language, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Uh, we, we live as creatures of time with whom there is always a before and after. There's always a succession of moments and hours and days and weeks, months, years. But all, all things are uh, ever present to the great I am, the self-existent one, as God reveals himself as the eternal God. And uh, of Peter, Second Peter, we read that one day is with God as a thousand years and a thousand years as as one day. 
And uh, we have similar language to that. In fact, it is rooted very likely in this language of verse 4, where it says, A thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. And so a thousand years is like uh, a, a day that has just passed, or even shorter than that. A watch in the night is just a few hours. The the, the night was divided into different uh, segments, so that watchmen could uh, change their shift. Just a few hours. But even that's a figure of speech, isn't it? A thousand years to God is as nothing, as a second. A million years, if we were to use those terms. God is not a creature of time. You know that before the flood, there were many who lived to be almost a thousand years old. And that's a long time. But not before God. And this psalm speaks of an average lifetime that is still largely true today, where it says that... uh, The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yeah, that's still uh, quite typical, uh, a reasonable average for a lifespan of people who live in uh, countries where they enjoy uh, wholesome diets and uh, a lot of uh, privileges that tend to extend our lives. But in comparison to God's eternity, that's that's really nothing. Life is short, and uh, we are frail, and our lives typically end with uh, weakness, and ultimately they all end in death. We return to the dust. We get a, a vivid picture of that in verses 5 and 6. You carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep. In the morning they are like grass which grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows up. In the evening it is cut down and and withers. I suppose someone reading this psalm might say, well, this really doesn't reflect a Christian outlook. It's kind of a bleak, maybe Old Testament-ish kind of perspective on things. And, and there's an element of truth in that, in that the context does seem to have reference to uh, those years of, of uh, futility that Israel spent in the wilderness after they were prohibited uh, from entering into the land of Canaan. It's a prayer of Moses, uh, the man of God, and the language indeed suggests God's uh, discipline and judgment uh, upon his people. And that's an important context. But uh, anyone who reads this psalm says, oh, that's just totally unrealistic, and they just dismiss it as if it has no bearing upon our understanding of the frailty of our lives today. Well... Uh, they're very shallow or inexperienced, uh, uh, and and uh, that perspective will likely change with age and experience. This is a beloved psalm that's often read uh, at funerals, and it's a psalm that is beloved by elderly people who can relate to it as they look back on their relatively short lives, and they uh, indeed are, are aware of the of the brevity of life before God. In fact, if uh, we look at a psalm like this and think that it's unrealistic, it may be that our lives at uh, at present yet are rather abnormal compared to what is so typical in uh, experience in this veil of tears. No, it's not the whole picture, indeed. This psalm doesn't give us the whole picture of the Christian outlook, 
but it gives a perspective that is true and valuable and important, important part of a, of a self-knowledge before God, that we are weak and frail. Our lives are short. They're quickly passed. The psalm also speaks of God's uh, righteous judgments. The Belgian Confession also speaks of God's moral attributes. It not only speaks of those transcendent, incommunicable attributes that are absolutely unique to God in terms of his eternity and his invisibility and unchangeableness, his infinite and almighty power, but it speaks of his justice and of his goodness. In fact, it focuses upon God's justice. He is just. And his justice is uh, known in the, the righteous sentence that he pronounced upon our first parents when he said, in the day that you eat of it, that is the for, forbidden fruit, uh, you shall surely die. Dust you are, to dust you will return. We might say that that every child born into this world, in a sense, is born under a death sentence. Because unless Christ returns in our lives, we will die. And though our death is not a punishment for sin, it still is the result of sin. There would be no death were it not for the fact of sin. And we are to be humbled by that realization. This prayer of faith in God's greatness is also a prayer of of confession. In verse 8, it says, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. Now again, a, a, a verse like that shows the fact that this is a psalm that is uh, certainly applicable to all, all people. Which one of us would be happy to have our, our thoughts for one hour this day? You could pick the hour, uh, written out in words or perhaps spoken or put on display on a screen for everybody to see. The thought of that is actually quite horrifying because we know that many of our imaginations are, and thoughts are positively evil. Perhaps while we sit in church, we're not free of envious thoughts or lustful thoughts or thoughts that just simply betray the foolishness and the vanity and the emptiness of our own remaining sin. But nothing is, nothing is hidden before God's all-seeing eye. There are no secrets to Him. He knows us perfectly and, and uh, absolutely. The light of His countenance or His Holy uh, gaze penetrates to our inmost thoughts, uh, to our to our hearts. And who would not be humbled before God's righteous gaze and His holy judgments in this view? Israel certainly is not the only ones to feel God's holy discipline. Moses himself. Remember, Moses was forbidden to enter into the promised land because he failed to honor God before the people. He rebelled against him. Those were the Lord's words describing his sin. And we're told three times that the Lord was angry with Moses. And uh, when Moses pleaded with God to uh, allow him to see the promised land, God did not relent and said, I want to hear no more of it. Don't raise that subject ever again. Moses experienced God's discipline for him, against him, for his sin. In Psalm 39, uh, we read, when with rebukes you correct man for his iniquity, you make his beauty melt away like a moth. Surely every man 
is vapor. We are to pray with the knowledge of ourselves before the reality of God's wrath. We have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath we are terrified. Verse 7. Verse 11. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. Again, we might say, well, we have, we have nothing to do with that. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And that is true. And God's people do not face God's wrath and judgment against them for their sin. But that doesn't mean that we have nothing to do with the reality of God's wrath against sin. As if we ought not to be affected by it at all. As if we ought not to be humbled by it. As if we ought not to have very, very serious thoughts about it. Doesn't mean that we have no reason to tremble at what we deserve. Think of Paul's exhortation to uh, the Christians in Ephesus when he warns them against uh, sexual immorality of every kind. And he says, for such things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Don't be deceived. And every Christian ought to be humbled by that because they know that if not overtly yet in their imaginations and in their thoughts, they've been guilty of those sins for which God sends people to hell. And that ought to be a humbling thing for us. I don't think we're in danger of exaggerating the seriousness of sin. I think the reverse is far more likely. We ought to tremble at what we have escaped. God has delivered us from the wrath to come through Christ. To tremble at what Christ endured for us. Who knows the power of your anger? Well, there is one who knows. And that's our substitute Savior. Endured the judgment that we deserve so that we might uh, be delivered from it. We ought to tremble at what is revealed concerning what unbelievers will face unless they come to repentance. Yes, we are to pray uh, confident in the everlasting God, but with humility that faces the reality of our weakness, of God's holy justice, of his wrath that we've escaped, that still humbles us. And along with that, we pray with hope in God's mercy. There are dark notes uh, to this psalm. There's no doubt about it. And again, they have special significance in view of the context, the historical references here in this psalm. But despite the dark notes, at no point does this psalm sink uh, into uh, despair. I often remember uh, Marilla's response, Aunt Marilla. Remember Anne of Green Gable? When Anne of Green Gables was in the depths of despair? Well, she wasn't really in the depths of despair. I think she accidentally colored her hair green or something like that. But I love Aunt Marilla's response. It's not, oh, you poor girl, I'll bring you to a professional tomorrow. It's like, to despair is to turn your back on God. That's a powerful statement of truth, isn't it? Yes, Christians may suffer, suffer deeply, and need compassion and mercy and help. But we ought not to condone any thought that to despair is somehow some passive uh, suffering that just overtakes us. No, it's a sin against God. It's to turn our back upon him. The Lord Jesus Christ himself, suffering the judgment that our sins deserve, did not despair, did he? He didn't turn his back on God. He cried out to him, my God, my God. He trusted in him, even in his anguish. And we need to remember as we are humbled, 
as we are humbled with physical suffering or mental anguish, circumstances that bring us to the end of ourselves, that we are in God's school. And it's a school of, of, uh, discipline, but it's a, it's a school of sanctification. We're learning from our sovereign master. Teach us, teach us, the psalmist prays. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Give us a realistic outlook on our lives so that we might pursue what is most important. Remember, uh, what, uh, we've heard before in connection with this series on God's glorious attributes. Those who know your name will put their trust in you. The next psalm begins with an expression of that trust. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him I will trust. But already in this Psalm 90, we have the expression of uh, trusting in God. Return, O Lord, how long, and have compassion on your servants. Oh, satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. It's as if the psalmist uh, is saying, we have experienced discipline indeed, and the affliction was long and it was hard, but please remove this suffering and replace it with joy. We have learned the valuable lessons of your discipline. We've heard your voice. Please make up for the hard times of sorrow with good times of gladness. We eagerly await the proof of your compassion. We trust in you. God's moral attributes are infinitely great. Article 1 speaks of those infinite characteristics of God. But uh, there is an infinity also to his moral uh, characteristics. Not only his power and his knowledge are without limits. The Bible uses a language that bring us before a God of infinite goodness. He's the overflowing uh, source of all good. How great is your goodness, which you have laid up, for those who fear you, the psalmist says elsewhere. And his mercy uh, may be broken down or rather described in terms of other characteristics by which God reveals himself as good. His mercy being one of them. Your mercy is great, the psalmist says, unto or above the heavens. Great is your mercy toward me. His faithfulness is unfailing. Think of... uh the words of this book of lament, lamentations, when there was great suffering under God's correcting, disciplining hand. Yet we read, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. God's love, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. The love of God was revealed in his saving mercy in Jesus Christ. And this hope in God's mercy then rises in this psalm, and it leads to these large and bold requests 
that we read. Oh, satisfy us that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Yeah, that's possible. That's possible in the face of suffering and human weakness and sin. That's possible uh, that our lives might also abound in, in joy in these uh, in our short pilgrimage uh, through the wilderness, if you will. The everlasting God is our Lord. And we might uh, consider that, that if the Old Testament saints could rise to such a level of faith, how much more may we plead the riches of God's mercy as they have been revealed in our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we pray with uh, humility, realizing ourselves and our weakness and need and sin, yet we are to pray with hope in God's mercy. And then finally, with hunger for God's glory. In verse 17, we read, Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. The Lord our God. This combines two names of God that are that are found in the previous section. Lord, Jehovah, as it's uh, sometimes rendered. He is our dwelling place, our home, our refuge, a secure place. The everlasting God is our God. In Deuteronomy 33, we read, The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And this Lord God of matchless glory is our God. And the psalmist basically pleads that God would show us that, enable us to to uh, perceive the the wonder and the truth of that. We we want we want the revelation of God's glory to us. Let your work appear to your servants, and your glory to their children. May we have a a spiritual uh, grasp of your majestic works and ways. Remember how Moses prayed that God would show him his glory and God revealed his uh, loving kindness and faithfulness and tender mercy and pardoning grace to him. And, and to be affected by that, to feel it, to, to perceive the wonder of that. That's not simply a matter of learning words, is it? It's a matter of the Holy Spirit's help to make the truth of those words very real to us, to make them effective for our comfort, to help us in our need. Show us your glory. Show us your glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a most fitting prayer. On a church visit recently, a colleague of mine asked about the prayers before the uh, the worship service. He said, do, do the elders or deacons ever ask that God would uh, reveal to us more of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, I've heard uh, such prayers, perhaps not in so many words, but that really is a very important kind of request, isn't it? We have a, a prayer for illumination, it's been called in the past, at the beginning of the service. And that is uh, a prayer for God's Spirit to give us that spiritual enlightenment so that we might be able to perceive in faith uh, the riches of God's greatness and goodness and mercy to us in Christ. We depend upon him for that. It's not simply a matter of, of, of proper uh, theology or a faithful exposition of a text. It's the work of God's Spirit making him known to us in a, an experiential way. Give us grace 
to behold you. Give this grace to our children according to your promise. Let your beauty be upon us, upon our children. That seems to speak also of the reflection of God's glory uh, by us. Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, Paul describes uh, this perspective of faith that is focused upon God's supreme revelation of himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it speaks of beholding his glory as in a mirror. And by beholding his glory, we are transformed into his image from glory to glory. That's really what sanctification uh, is, and, and that's how it takes place. It's by focusing upon the Lord and the Holy Spirit works in us as we grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we pray for. This morning we heard about the fact that we're called to serve God in uh, our daily life, in our vocation, whatever that might be. But we might also say that likeness to God is our vocation. That's the most important thing of our calling. And everything that is of true beauty and dignity and fruitfulness in life depends upon this, on God with us. And on this depends also the assurance of uh, the lasting uh, value of our labor. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to accomplish some great feats that will be celebrated down through the generations or that the results of our, of our life and witness will even be uh, evident so much in our lives but it's a prayer that our lives might advance the kingdom of God and our influence upon others, upon our children, brothers and sisters, perhaps those we've never met. One life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You've heard that phrase. And everything that is done for Christ will last. Yes, God's greatness, it humbles us, but it also lifts us up. It encourages us. It gives us a sense of purpose and calling, whatever our circumstances might be. And it gives us great reason to expect that God will fulfill those desires that he has implanted within us. Not in, the, in this life, right? We'll make progress uh, throughout this life. God will perfect the work he's begun in us, and he will complete it eventually, but not in this present life. But we'll be satisfied when we uh, awake in his likeness and when we see him as he is. And in the meantime, that gives us a sense of purpose as we, as we carry on in this short pilgrimage that will certainly end in everlasting glory. Amen.